everybody, and welcome to Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on a deep dive into the happenings of the hospitality industry. Now, every week, I get to talk to an incredible array of talented people about their passions and professions. Now, if you're new here, a little bit about me. So I've been covering the food, beverage, and hospitality scene for the last 20 years. I know, I don't look a day over 21, but it's true. Uh, for a variety of outlets, I'm on print, online, television, radio, podcast, and social. Now, 20 years of the list are if you on it. The list are you on it.com is the online e-zine that I created that tells you about every restaurant opening, food and wine promotion and happenings around the city. Every Sunday, you tune into Foodie and the Beast. It's DC's only food and wine radio variety show and we just celebrated this weekend 15 years on air now of course you follow me at n-y-c-c-i-n-e-l-l-i-s instagram facebook twitter thread linkedin youtube all the things because that's where you see where i'm eating where i'm traveling and what i'm doing and speaking of insta if you pay attention to my feed you know i've been traveling for like the past month um i've had the incredible good fortune to travel through different areas of italy um a little bit of work a little bit of play but um i was back to sardinia and for the first time traveled to como and to milan um it was during fashion week too so it was all pretty fabulous um so the sights the sounds the combos the food the wine all so so good but last week i took you to sardinia this week i'm gonna take you to como so we left sardinia crying tears in our eyes because we just love it there so much um but we did get to como and we stayed right outside of bellagio in the town of letzano in this brand new hotel called the filario very charming right on the water um, you know, I just don't think we really understood how Como works. So if you've never been, there's lots of little towns, but only two or three of the towns actually have places to walk around. So Letzano did not have that. And we kind of thought we would just kind of hop on over to Bellagio and sort of schmy around there. There's no doing that because there's no sidewalks. So, um, and the streets are tiny, 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 and they're two way. So we learned that very quickly and we ferried all over the place. We had a car, we totally did not need it. Um, but I will tell you, we did spend our first morning walking the streets of Chernobyl, just smiling around the gorgeous Villa Desta, which you have seen in a thousand hotels um, I mean sorry a thousand movies um, the hotel is just gorgeous with amazing grounds and uh, we sat for a legit three-hour lunch at the terrace restaurant it was like being in a movie because we were right on the water and David did say it was the best tiramisu we ever had um, gluttons that we are we went that night for a Michelin starred uh, dinner at Mistral which is in the Grand Villa Serbelloni um, I haven't seen that many um, side table side preps in a really long time, like the salad, the pasta, the steak, the dessert, everything was done table side. And, you know, I think sometimes we think Michelin starred restaurants are going to be super fussy um, and snotty, but this one wasn't. The staff we had was so lovely and generous of spirit and not just with us, but with everybody. And we just we had a wonderful time. Okay, we took the must-do boat trip through the lake. Uh, it was a private tour uh, on one of those fabulous Italian boats, saw all the gorgeous villa villas. We walked all over Tremezzo. We had another lakeside lunch um, at the Grand, and we really enjoyed walking around Bellagio uh, and had dinner actually at Forma and Gusto, which everybody raves about. So here's the thing about Como. It's gorgeous. The views are unlike anything I've ever seen. And David and I both agree that we ate well, though let's be clear, you're not going to come up for the food. And although the sights are stunning, we think we're ocean people and not lake people. I think Sardinia is more our speed. Okay, now that is the past. Let's talk about the now. The last couple of days, I've been out to a couple of great things happening here and around DC. Uh, there is a new menu at Chang Chang. Um, you know, Peter Chang and his team are turning out some of the very best Sichuan in town. Uh, pro tip, get the tofu skin. 
don't roll your eyes. If you haven't had it, then you don't know because, oh my goodness, it is addictively delicious. Um, and I did dine at the very hot and good luck getting a reservation, El Presidente. Uh, that's Stephen Starr's latest. Uh, it's a Mexican restaurant. It is visually spectacular. DC really has nothing that looks like that in the city. And the service is classic star, amazingly kind, thoughtful, prompt. Um, there are still some kinks to work out as far as the food goes, but I'm very optimistic. Um, and he is opening up like three more restaurants in town. So y'all pay attention. Okay, on to today's show. So back at the summer, well, I really miss summer already. I can't believe summer is over. Okay, but I digress. Okay, so back in the summer, I had Philippe Massoud, who is the chef and owner of Elili Restaurants. That's Elili, New York and D.C., he joined um, David and I on Foodie and the Beast, and it was the first time that we met, and I really got his story, which was so engaging, and I thought, 10 minutes is not enough time. I've got to go deeper with this guy. So if you don't know Chef Philippe, um, he came to New York as a refugee from Lebanon in his teens. And when he created a lily, it's an homage to his country, but really the dishes he grew up with. But his is a story of immigration, and I think his culinary trajectory is really interesting. And I love how he brought these childhood dishes to the East Coast. So, hi, Chef. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to, to our session today. Well, it's great to see you, even <laughs> though it's not in person and without the hummus, I might add. Um, I feel like I should just have like a, a big bowl with me right here. I'll be I'll be I'll be in town uh, the first week of November, so hopefully we'll we'll be able to to catch up then. If if you're scheduled, I would love that. Okay, so let's talk about yeah. you. You're born in Lebanon. You grew up in Beirut. Yes, I grew up in Beirut. I actually grew up on the street in which on which the civil war broke out, which was the known uh, as Kantari Street. So I, I lived right across from the Holiday Inn. I grew up on the street um, and we lived above a grocery store that was run by my father's cousins, uh, which was like the Dean and the Luca of Beirut at the time. And um, on uh, April uh, in 1975, uh, we were up in the mountains uh, on a weekend, you know, like the way you go to Virginia or you go to Maryland, you know, suburbia style. And uh, we were driving back to Beirut and uh, skirmishes had broken out and we were like okay maybe we can't go home let's go to the hotel that my family can i ask owned. because i mean just given uh, what's going on in the world right now were skirmishes breaking out regularly i mean was it a part of life or was this new so you could feel the tension so i remember as a child a uh, militiamen with uh, you know black masks and guns, uh, I remember roadblocks. Uh, I remember these images, uh, and, and I think this was a prelude to, the, to, to what eventually became the Lebanese Civil War. Um, and it was happening, you know, it, we, we called them fireworks when we were children, right? Because you didn't want to scare the children and all that. But never did we have to leave our house or, you know, or, or be refugees. And in essence, what ended up happening is that we went and stayed at the hotel that my family owned, uh, and we never went home. And uh, we lost uh, our house in Beirut. We lost our house in the mountains. And back then, if you were a Christian living on the Muslim side, you got screwed. And if you were a Muslim living on the Christian side, you got screwed. And if you were a Jew, you got double screwed because, you know, it, it was just one big mess, right? Um, and, and there was a lot of migration that happened. And we, so my parents ended up living in a room, my brother and sister in another, and I in a room with the, with the housekeeper. And little did I know back then that this is where my journey and my relationship with food would begin. Um, because, so every Sunday my dad would cook at, at home. Every, my dad was, you know, a chef, a, tra a trained chef, but he was also the, hotel's uh, general manager. My grandfather was an amazing cook. As a matter of fact, the entire village I come from is in the food business because of my grandfather. 
Because when they saw my grandfather succeed, the whole village went. So was your sense. grandfather, your grandfather owned a butcher shop? Is that correct? So, so my grandfather was the son of a stonemason. And him and his brother told their father that they were going to have none of that. They would walk um, three to four hours to Beirut and work as prep cooks in the homes of the rich and famous in Beirut. And then subsequently, my grandfather and his brother went to Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, they worked in the palaces there and they, they learned how to cook. And then they came back to Lebanon and opened up a butcher shop. From the butcher uh, around the Jewish quarters in, in Beirut, which is called Wadi Awujmil. And then from there, they opened up a restaurant, which was called Masoud Brothers. And it had, it had a patisserie, a, a chocolatier, a cremier. So pastry, chocolate, ice cream, catering, and restaurants. And um, my, grand, my grandfather, and back then, you're talking Ottoman Empire, you're talking 1900s. Um, all the desserts in the Middle East were clotted cream, fried dough with simple syrup that was flavored with orange blossom water and rose water. Maybe, maybe some aromatics like cinnamon and cloves and what have you. So my grandfather went to Austria and invited the Austrian pastry chefs to come to Lebanon to teach the Lebanese how to do patisseries. So we started doing, you know, Black Forest cakes, uh, succès, uh, éclairs, millefeuilles, croissants, and all that. And we taught a lot of the Lebanese at the time, because nobody was doing this, uh, how to do European pastries and all that. They made a lot of money with that. And then my grandfather decided to buy a big piece of land on the outskirts of Beirut. Uh, sorry, no. From there, they went and built a bed and breakfast in the mountains of Lebanon. My grandmother sold all the bed sheets, sold all the curtains. Uh, my grandfather was a general manager. He was working, you know, 90 hours a week. And uh, the royals from the Gulf would come uh, spend their summers. And the emir of Qatar at the time was a regular guest. Uh, we're talking mid-40s, early 50s. Huh? And then eventually my grandfather sold that and bought this big plot of land on the sea. And we built uh, what was what is known as the Coral Beach Hotel, which was the first beach resort uh, in Lebanon on the sand um, with a French uh, Michelin level restaurant, a piano bar and a nightclub, which was called the Beachcomber, uh, which was designed by the people that did Trader Vicks in London. Wow. I mean, it all um, sounds so then, sexy, you know, it just sounds really glamorous. So, so it's funny because, you know, I used to sneak out from my bedroom in the hotel and go hide behind the fake walls of the nightclub to watch people dancing. Uh, and I was, you know, eight years old and they would make me these mixed drinks called the Jamaica or the Mai Tai or the daiquiris and all that. But of course, all non-alcoholic, but I would act like I, you know, I was a young adult, um, but, you know, the true, my true passion was spending time in the patisserie. So making sablés uh, with apricot jam, uh, tasting the creme patissière, uh, grabbing the tempered chocolate that was sitting on top of the deck ovens, um, and, and watching all the production being done, right? And, and I was a little kid. You know, I loved it. I would taste, I would make my comments. I'd watch them prepare, you know, for banquets and all that. And I would spend time in the kitchen and my father would always kick me out. He's like, this business is not for you. You go learn to be a doctor, be, learn to be a lawyer, learn to be, you know. Um, and, and I had a code with the employees of the hotel whereby when my father would come, they would whistle a certain way so that I would sneak out of the kitchen because I didn't want to get screamed at. Um, but I would always sneak back into the kitchen to, to, to watch what was going on. So little did I know that this is when I was, you know, watching and learning everything. In 1980, which is almost six years after, six years, uh, five, five years after the war had broken, we moved to an apartment and I go food shopping for the first time in my life with my mom to the supermarket because I had never been to a supermarket. I had never bought food for a house because I was living in the kitchen of a hotel and there was food all the time and we prepped everything. 
So we go there and I'm like, well, you know, the pound cake that we have at the hotel, you know, how are we going to make that? So we buy a box of Duncan Hines um, and we buy the cereals, you know, Cocoa Puffs, Lucky Charms and all that stuff. And all of a sudden I'm at home, I'm making my first Duncan Hines cake. And I'm like, yeah, but this is not like the pound cake that we have at the hotel. And I'm like, what the hell is this? You know, I can't, the, the, the flavors are just not driving with me. So I pick up the phone and I call the hotel and I'm like, I, I want to make the pound cake. Uh, and I'm, you know, seven or eight years old. You sound like, like a really precocious kid. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I was. But, you know, it's, I got hooked. I lived in a kitchen. This is all I knew. This was my world. You uproot me from my world. What's my pivot? My pivot is I'm going to bring my world to me and I'm going to reproduce it myself. And this is this is how it happened, you know. And this is how I started making crepes, eggs, tarts, uh, chocolate cakes, marble cakes, brownies, uh, you know. And it was all desserts, right? I didn't know that you know, savory. I would make curries at home, you know. Whenever my parents had the party, I'd be with the chefs in the kitchen plating the the buffets and what have you. So the war gets really, really, really bad. Uh, my brother leaves uh, for Colorado. My sister leaves for France, and I'm the last kid in the family to stay. How old are you? I am 14 years old. Um, we're getting death threats. You know, we're being told how we're going to be killed and how we're going to get slaughtered and what have you. And you know, and at the time, you know, I was a good um, Catholic boy that believed in turn the right cheek and the left cheek and whatever cheek you want to talk about. So. I would talk on the phone with these people that wanted us harm and I'd say, but you don't know me. Why do you want to kill me? You know, I could be your kid. I could be this, you know, because the phone would ring on the dot every three, around three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon. When my mom found out that this was happening and, and also because we got pulled over on a roadblock and the guy that pulled us over was a kid that was with me in high school. And she's like, wait a second, you're going to high school with these kids? I'm like, yeah. It's like this guy in class. She's like, okay. So, the, so they bought me a ticket to come to the U.S. and to meet an uncle that I had never known in Colorado and an aunt that had left uh, Lebanon in the 70s uh, that was living in, in Westchester in Scarsdale. So I, I land in the U.S. I go to Colorado, uh, loved Colorado. I discovered Pizza Hut and the big picture. Well, I mean, you were already eating Lucky Charms and Cocoa Puffs, so it's not like you didn't have a taste for the sugar. Correct. You know what I mean? Correct, correct, correct. And I had, correct, and I had a, a big soft spot for pancakes, and I loved pancakes, and I put, put ton, tons of butters on them. And we had Aunt Jemima in Lebanon, so we would you know pour a lot of syrup on, on top of those. But I go to Colorado, discover uh, the U.S. in a way that I had never thought of it, come back to Westchester County uh, and my parents call me and they're like, oh, by the way, you can't come back home. You have to stay. That must have been hard. That must have been horrifying. That must have been really terrible. It was, but I thought it was going to be like three months and I'll go back home. You know, and I, I didn't think that I was going to, you know, and my poor aunt had to put up with me because, you know, she was reproducing the food as best she could. And every time she made something, I was like, yeah, well, this doesn't really taste right. You know, this is not the way we did it at the Coral Beach. And then one day she told me, she's like, you know, if you don't like the food, just don't eat it. I don't want to hear one word out of you anymore. You keep on comparing this food to the Coral Beach. You know, when, when you have time, why don't you cook and, and make us, you know, the food? So um, when did you start and, cooking? At that and, point, like at, at what point are we, do you say to yourself, I really want to be a chef? Because your dad is telling you to be a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, something in a different genre of profession. So at what point are you like, I can do this for a living? I'm already cooking all the time. So I'm cooking in all the after hours whenever my friends and I are going out. Uh, I'm cooking uh, every every opportunity there is, but I'm not thinking that I'm going to be a chef. I, I, I don't know that I'm going to be a chef. I'm thinking I'm going to go and run, uh, come back and run this hotel and grow the family brand. You know, I'm not thinking, I don't know that this is where the passion lies. Now, mind you, I used to make chocolate cakes and every time we went to the mountains, I would distribute them 
to like four different houses. People would send me orders. This was this is when I was eleven okay. years old. So I used to make a flourless chocolate cake with cognac. Uh, it was you know a delicious mousse cake, you know, with powdered uh, cocoa on top. Um, so I used to do little things like that, but that's because I I enjoyed it. You know, it was uh, you know some some guys collected cars. I like to make chocolate cakes. You know. Uh, and that's the way it turned out, you know. Uh, but I didn't know that I was going to end up doing what I was doing. So I, I go to Scarsdale High School. I don't. I speak, you know, really broken English. Glass water, please come, go. Thank you, goodbye, you know. And at the time, it was really difficult because it was when Lebanon was in total chaos. We had a lot of American hostages. The Marine barracks had been blown up not too long ago. Well, not to mention uh, Scarsdale is not known for its... Um, well, it's not diverse, <laughs> bad, but I mean, you know, it's a, it's a rough and tumble. They're New Yorkers, you know, like... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 so this was this was the fun part. So here I am, you know, this this guy that's plucked out of Lebanon, that's in this neighborhood that you know where everybody thinks I'm like an alien coming from another planet, and they you know they're coming to look at me like, is this guy human or not? You know, and it was. Listen, I had an amazing dean. Her name was Susan Diamond. She was the most lovely human being on the planet. The moment she met me, she took me to the head of uh, sports. His name was Ron Bouchier because I was a very big guy. And she's like, Ron, look what I brought you. You know, 14 year old with like thighs this big and, and big arms and all that. So he's like, he's, you know, he's interviewing me if I know anything about American football. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't. All I know is, you know, water sports because I live, I'm a sea guy, I'm a water guy, you know. Um, it's like, well, come back next year when you speak better English. We're gonna, we want you to join the football team. You know. So uh, while I was in the, in in uh, Scarsdale, I we would do Sunday barbecues, and you know, my uncle George and I, we would man the barbecue. He was a, a, a great barbecuer and all that. Make a little bit of hummus here, a little salad here. Nothing, nothing fancy. Um, and. We would come to New York to try different restaurants that presumably were serving Lebanese cuisine or, or, or Levantine cuisine. And, and everything was, was always a bit of a disappointment and really far off the spectrum of authenticity. Do you think at that time and, the food was off from authenticity because they were trying to placate what they deemed American palates? You know, like if you think of like so Chinese food, you know, from like the 60s, like if you look at food from uh, the restaurants and what they were serving, uh, Mediterranean cuisine, Chinese cuisine, Thai food, etc., Indian food, especially, you know, there was a lot of placating, you know, American tastes as opposed to today where Americans want authenticity, you know? Um, so do you think that's what was happening? So, so no, I think you, you have two type of chefs uh, and, and, and restaurant owners, if you want, that are out there. You have the ones that are very committed to the authenticity and take it very seriously. You have the ones that are doing the authenticity as best as they remember. And you have the other ones that say, oh, these are Americans. They're not going to know the difference. The difference, let's serve them whatever we're going to serve them. So that's, you know, that they don't know the difference. They're not going to know that this is not the right hummus. They're not going to know that it's a canned chickpea. They're not going to know that, you know, you're not supposed to. So the same way with Tex-Mex, right? Um, and, and, it also ties into how people immigrated to countries. So if you go to Paris or you go to London and you go to Montreal, there were entire villages and skill sets of Lebanese that immigrated to these neighborhoods. And therefore, yeah, you had an accountant, you had a doctor, but you also had a cook that immigrated. The migration that happened in the US was very different and it was not as dense or intense as it, it was in Paris and London and therefore, a lot of the people that reproduced the food in the U.S. were people that were reproducing it from memory to the best of their abilities. They were not trained chefs. They had not worked in, in kitchens in Lebanon. 
uh, or maybe their grandma, you know, they're remembering it the way their grandma did it and so on and so forth. And as the, as the food was passed on one generation to the other, it's, it eventually, it's DNA degraded a little bit, the same way a, a signal or a message right, like degrades telephone, over Right, time. I tell you something, like it just takes time. Exactly. And not to say that in their hearts of hearts, these individuals that were reproducing the food were not doing the absolute best job that they could, but that's not, you know, that was not the authentic, the authentic way the food is, was being well, served in Beirut. But I can also Beirut jump in, in and Lebanon. I mean, I just think, um, you know, family traditions, right? The food that we had that is family traditions, wherever you're from, doesn't mean that it's, I don't want to say that it's good because that's like my grandmother was a great cook, but like not all of her dishes were like good. Do you know what I mean? She was a better baker than she was a cook. But traditionally for the holidays, what she served was what her mother served. Do you know what I mean? And like my sister, my mom, my sister and I, I mean, we're all cooks. We all cook. Um, but we we don't serve what she served. We, we have now updated what she served because now we make it taste good, you know, to, to, for the palates of today as well as, you know, but as a homage and, to and, what and, she did. Does that make sense? And potentially some of the stuff you're doing could be considered, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago would have been considered blasphemous. That, oh my God, you cannot not, you know, you have to do this dish this way. You cannot deviate from it. Don't you touch it. It's, almost sacrosanct to, to right. touch it and 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 you know and but who says you can't uh, revisit a dish and reinvent it and, and try to evolve it and and i think this is in a way you know why we've been successful at Ilili and why this food now is the levantine cuisine you know from all walks of life is experiencing a huge renaissance and, and a huge uh, market growth because um, people are really uh, trying to execute it in a, in a much better way, in a fresher way, in a more studied way. And we are injecting professional uh, skills to it. While before it was, you know, very rural and, you know, it was okay if it all tasted like cinnamon, even though cinnamon was supposed to be a hint, let's say, for example, right? Or it was okay that it all tastes like all spice even though you were just supposed to flavor it with a bit of allspice, right? So, so, and, and in essence, that's, that's what I did uh, with, with the food. You know, I went back to my memory banks. I went back to the recipes that, uh, that I remember that I have written. Uh, and I said, okay. But well, you cooked, but wait, we we're sort of jumping and I mean, we don't have hours and hours, but yeah. you cooked in other restaurants first, right? Before you opened Lily, you cooked so, in other restaurants. So I did not cook okay. in other restaurants. I taught myself how right. to cook, just so that you know. I cooked. I cooked at the in the hotel uh, as right. a kid, and then when I went to college, when I went to college and I discovered the recipe card, mm -hmm. it was as if the skies parted and the divine, divine intervention came to me, because all of a sudden I was like, oh my god, now I understand how I'm going to evolve the flavors mm. that I know. And I started at the age of 17, writing all the recipes wow. that I could remember. Can discuss some of those? Because, you know, you Levantine and, and Lebanese and Middle Eastern, I mean, listen, the entire region, and obviously it is blowing up right now, but the entire region, um, all, you know, the ingredients are all very similar. So can we talk about some of the dishes that are specific to your family and where you grew up so that people have a really good understanding. Hummus is like, it, listen, your hummus is delicious, don't get me wrong, but it's become ubiquitous, right? So people have lost really what hummus is as from regional and what the difference is where you, you know, where you get it from. Do you know what I mean? The, the hummus you have from Lebanon is totally different than the hummus you would get from a, from Greece, which is totally different, you know, from Israel, which is totally different from the West Bank. I mean, it's totally different. So can we talk about some of those dishes and what you feel really represents the taste 
of Lebanon? Certainly, certainly. And just to give some context <laughs> to your listeners, the whole region was under Ottoman control for about 400 <laughs> years. And the Ottomans were ruthless because they would take over geographies, annihilate the intelligentsia, mm -hmm. appropriate the culture, and whatever they liked, travel throughout the entire empire. And this is why everybody, all the way up to the Balkans, is very familiar with the food uh, that is known as Levantine mm -hmm. food, because it traveled throughout the empire. Uh, now, what differentiated the execution of the food in different countries was the agriculture mm. and the ecosystem. And Lebanon, as you know, is you can snow ski and water ski within 45 minutes, and we have 17 microclimates. So the abundance that we had compared to other areas was a huge benefit to us. Besides the fact that we've had the Italians and the French and every other Tom, Dick and Harry that's been through the country. So we appropriated a lot of skills from that. Just so that you know, back then in Lebanon, it wasn't chic to eat Lebanese. <laughs> you know, you when you went out, uh, you, when you went out to the top restaurants, it was all French, French Michelin or Italian. And if you were lucky, you had the Asian or the Chinese, but it was French and Italian everywhere. And, and, and at our hotel, it was the same thing, you know, the Solmenier, the Steak au Poivre, the Crepe Suzette, the Baba au Rhum, uh, on the Guéridon and all that. Now, going back to, to the food, my first memory of the food was eating kibbe with yogurt, kibbe bilaban, which is known as kibbe in yogurt, at my grandmother's home. And my grandmother, by the way, I'm half Syrian, right? So my mom is from Aleppo, Syria. My, my father is from Lebanon. Um, and, and that, that dish was something we all looked forward to every Sunday, at least one Sunday a month to go to grandma's and eat the kid baby Lebanon, right? So that's a dish that we, we, we serve in New York. We don't serve it in DC. Uh, but maybe I'm thinking maybe you should serve it. That's it. what I'm thinking. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so, uh, those dishes, you know, were executed the way I remembered them with the, of course, I brought my, when I opened the restaurant, I brought my mom here. Uh, my, my brother brought his uh, mother-in-law. Everybody was in the kitchen. Everybody was tasting all the time to make sure that everything was properly calibrated. Um, uh, the lamb shank that we do, for example, that's uh, from every Easter and Christmas uh, dinner that we used to have. Of course, back in Lebanon, we would put chestnuts with it and some, some fruits. Here, it's a bit uh, less unadulterated. But in essence, what we did at Ilili, uh, just so that to be clear, is I said to myself, if I want, I cannot take you to Beirut, and I cannot take you to the shores of the Mediterranean, I want to be able to tell you that I have done the absolute best job I can to bring it to you in New York or Washington, D.C. And that's what we've done, you know, simple as that. And for the Lebanese that come and eat in our restaurant, believe, and, and, I'm, and you, can, you should ask them, okay. don't ask me, some of them will not eat Lebanese in Lebanon anymore because we've lightened up the food so much, because we're executing it in a, in a very, in a lighter way. Uh, uh, while, you know, in Lebanon, it can be a bit heavier, it can be a bit... Uh, oh, let me ask you know, about that. Uh, you talk about the 17 microclimates, right? So, you know, um, let's use Italy as an example. You know, every region of Italy serves their pasta, the shapes, the sauces, the, the context. It's all based right. on, you know, the locality, what's in people's backyards, basically. Um, is it like that in Lebanon? Do you find that, you know, that it people is. cook differently like so same thing with india i mean india is a massive country but you have these regional cuisines do we get regional cuisines it's more nuanced the the departure is not huge it's more nuanced i'll okay. give you a simple example for example kibinaya which, which i love the steak tartare if you go if you go up north 
Uh, it's heavy on mm -hmm. mint. Some people might add the uh, marjoram. Some people might add uh, mm -hmm. basil. Okay. Um, they will also add the fat to the meat when they're working it. If you go to Beirut, Beirut, it's more neutral. It has mint and that's it. You go south, it has something called mardakush, which mm. is, uh, uh, and kamuniye, sorry, pardon me, kamuniye, which is basically bulgur that is tossed with cumin and all sorts of spices in addition to dried marjoram, whereby as you're eating the kibbe, you're dipping it into these additional spices and you're mm. eating it. Another thing they do, which is also done um, in, in Israel and by the Palestinians and uh, like in the towns like Haifa and Nahariya and all that, they will eat the raw kibbeh with the stuffing of the fried kibbeh. So you'll have the ground meat that is sautéed with the pine nuts and meats. You're eating the kibbeh and you're, you're eating it uh, with the cooked wow. meat as well. Um, and, and we do that in Lebanon as well, so, but, but it's done all over mm -hmm. the region. Another example is hummus, right? Um, a real hummus, at least as the Lebanese really? would, would think of it, is a perfect balance between the chickpea, the tahini, the lemon juice, and a touch mm -hmm. of olive oil. No garlic, no cumin, no additives. And it's how you cook the chickpeas that gives you that balance and a lot of people will think it does have garlic but it has mm -hmm. no garlic now some people add garlic but when the moment you add garlic what a lot of people don't realize is that it will start fermenting sure. uh and, and this is why you will get funny belly after eating hummus that mm -hmm. has garlic um cumin is an additive that is done in syria it's done in jordan it's done in israel it's done in palestine it's done um in some areas of the of, of north mm -hmm. lebanon but not in beirut where you will not find cumin interesting in uh, so but but the italians take things to a totally different level i mean there might be regional wars if you want if you get people to argue about their pasta and who's making the, the better pasta we don't have that level of differentiation in lebanon but there are nuances mm -hmm. huh? Um, in the flavorings and in the herbs, uh, because some herbs grow better in sure. one area versus the other. Another difference that you will see is in the, the whether you're cooking with olive oil or you're, you're cooking uh, with fat. Mm. So, uh, and, and usually on the Christian side, there is less fat, less, it's less heavy, less rich. Uh, why i don't know don't mm -hmm. you know I'm, I'm not discriminating and on the muslim side it's a bit heartier and heavier uh uh in regards to the cooking but you know both taste delicious so i mean i, I, I wouldn't discriminate either they both sound fantastic so i am curious so you open up in 2007 in new york what makes you decide to come to dc i mean why ex and what was it about the DC market? Sure. And for those who don't know, you opened up in the wharf in the former Mike Isabella Space Requin, which had sat for quite some time. It is a fabulous location. You look right at the water. Um, it's a very sexy space. I mean, I could see why you would be attracted to it, but um, I'm just sort of curious, what, what was your connection to DC? So... When I graduated from college and I realized that I was going to be a chef, I went and I trained in Lebanon and worked in the top Lebanese restaurants. I went and I trained in Paris as well and worked in the top restaurants there. From 1994 to 1998, I worked in some of New York City's best restaurants, learning the art of running the business uh, while on the side trying to open my own restaurant. But every landlord I called would say, have you operated in New York before? No, they would hang up on me. So it was impossible to get a space. Subsequently, I moved to DC in 1998, 99, and I helped Paul Cohen and Bashar oh. Namur open Nyla. up Nyla in Town, <laughs> which is my sister's name I and the name restaurant. of the daughter of one of the How investors. How did I not know that you opened up that restaurant? That's so funny. <laughs> so I was the executive and concept manager of Naila, and I was 
so I worked the door. I were, I was the DJ on the weekends. I was the baker. I was the guy that worked the grill. I mean, it was insane. I was working, you know, ridiculous amounts of time. And then I left Naila in uh, 2004. I took a year off. And a friend of mine called me from New York and said, listen, man, we used to come to DC to eat the food that you, you were helping, you know, reproduce uh, at, at Naila. Why don't you come and open up in New York? I'm like, George, are you are you out of your mind? I haven't been in New York in six years. I don't know a manager. I don't know. I don't know a bartender. I don't know a server. It's like, just come and we'll, 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 I'm sure you'll figure it out. And I went and I went looking and I went looking and looking and looking and I walked into the space in which we are here in New York. And it was again the the skies parted, the beams came down, and the the gods, uh, the angels sang, and I was like, okay, this is the space. And I, I and I was very fortunate, you see, because of the heritage that I have, because of the my grandfather and my father, and because people knew that I am the son of these two amazing gentlemen, and the work ethic and what have you. When they found out that I was going to open up the most ambitious Lebanese restaurant outside of Lebanon in the world, as a matter of fact, um, the whole community came and rallied the, uh, and, and, and funded me. And um, here I was, myself and 80 Americans um, that had never eaten, served, or been to Lebanon. They did not know what Meza was. Um, and we opened November 17th of 2007. Right and the, before, the New York press. Right before, what timing? <laughs> right before the crash, right? <laughs> no, but, but, but here's the kicker. The New York press did not know that I was a New Yorker, so I got slaughtered in the media. Who is this lunatic that is opening a 10,000 square foot restaurant in the flat iron, in the most desolate area of mm. New York? Blah blah blah, and and who thinks that Lebanese food can be at this level? And this is crazy. And like the New York Post wrote, "Stop the Lebanon." Oh nonsense. my God, they're eating their words. Uh, Are they eater. eating their words? Right? Wait, did Eater exist? Was Eater? Yes, I mean, it's, it's... <laughs> yeah, Eater death watched me. Eater Eater put us as a restaurant that was you know, was uh, eminently <gasps> going to go bankrupt. I mean, listen, I'm so glad that they don't do that kind of stuff anymore. I mean, we may do it behind the scenes, you know, us food writers, like we may talk to each other, but I would never say that kind of stuff publicly. That's, this is people's livelihoods. That's so mean. No, I, I you know, listen, I, I, it's all water under the bridge. The only, the only thing that I will, is unforgiven is that they did that during the financial crisis. And I had, you know, almost 120 employees, which is 120 families that I was taking right. care of, and I found it to be in very bad Agreed. taste, right? So we survived the, we survived the economical uh, disaster, and, and the restaurant took off, and we've been growing ever mm -hmm. since. And um, So what brought you to DC? And then, you know, when I found what brought out, you down here? Um, I wanted to come back to DC. I love DC. I had an amazing time in DC. I loved... Um, I, I mean, love, but it changed a lot like from the time you left to the time you came down here. I mean, the work, the work didn't exist when you were here before. Correct. But DC has become a real world mm -hmm. capital. It was not when I left, mm -hmm. but, but coming back to it and seeing how it has evolved and the amazing variety in the, in the restaurants, the bar programs, the, I mean, right. you name it. It's becoming a real amazing city. And I think to be honest with you, I don't. I see nothing but upside for Washington D.C. compared to many other cities, because you have a perfect mix. You have the government that's always gonna. The economy is, is always gonna be semi-resilient, unless, of course, our politicians, pardon me, screw it up. Uh, but but uh, it's evolved tremendously. And when I saw the wharf, uh, you know, um, what Monty Hoffman and uh, Madison Marquette, you know, the Hoffman Group and Madison Marquette have done is amazing it's uh it's 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 really it's great pioneering and it's the way to transform cities and i think it should be done in other well, cities i think you're uh, seeing it in model. other cities you know i mean i was just in boston last weekend and even in areas of new york you go into brooklyn like listen dc brooklyn new york philadelphia 
I mean, on the East Coast, I can speak to especially, and I know a little bit of the West Coast, but you're seeing this intense investment and they want restaurants, 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 right? And they want retail, but they're not really as into independent retail as they are into independent restaurants or, or concepts that make sense. They want some chains, but they also want, you know, these amazing concepts. And, and this is to their detriment because I believe we're, we're all moving in a experiential mm -hmm. mode. Just having, having a shelf and product on it is no longer cutting it. If you want butts in seats and you want people coming in to do retail, you have to offer more. There has to be a value added to the experience. Otherwise, you know, why the hell am I going to go somewhere if I can push a button and get it delivered and I don't, I can do something that I enjoy, <laughs> right? So you gotta, you gotta raise the bar for me to come into your store. And I think this is where there's still a breakdown between the retail experience and what retailers are looking for. And they haven't figured that no, out. No, I don't dis I don't because, dis listen, in the end I don't of the disagree day, with you, but I do think yeah. like if you look at the wharf as an example, it's an ex people go down to the wharf, maybe because they have a reservation in a lily, but they'll go two hours early because they can walk around, they can go have a drink someplace else, they can go sit on one of the swings, they can take in the sunset. I mean, we we go down there. I mean, I, I don't want to explain what I do, but I like to walk a lot. So, I mean, I walk from Georgetown to the wharf. Like, that's like my gig. And it's a great wharf, wow. a great walk. Um, yeah. But then, yeah. you know, you're at the wharf and the sights are beautiful and you're on the water. Um, so I do, I, I do think when it comes to retail there, there could be more independent if they would allow for it from a financial standpoint, because it would appeal to me. Do you know what I mean? Like I would find that appealing. I know it's a lot of tourists down there, so I don't know if it appeals to them. It depends on who the market's for. True, true, true. I mean, but it's, it's, um, I think where, what the, where the work succeeded is in creating that critical mass that is feeding mm -hmm. on itself. Uh, which uh, is not easy to reproduce, you know? And, and if I want to look at another very, very successful example, and which is not, not so related, but Ball Harbor Mall, oh, sure. you know, is the most successful mall. But why? Because you go there, you feel elevated, you feel uplifted, the water, the greenery, mm -hmm. everything, everything comes together. There's a whole uh, production that's impacting you, which the wharf does, because as you're walking through it's beautiful. it, you, you do get a bit of that feeling. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally, listen, um, I had friends who were in from New York last week. I told you, I took them to El Presidente, but um, I, they were staying at, they called me, where should I stay? I, I said, you should stay at the Pendry at the wharf. And, you know, my one girlfriend had lived here years ago. And she was like, I don't understand where we are. She couldn't, she couldn't figure out. And then, then I take her to Union Market and she's like, Wait, where yeah. are we? Like, you know, in the 90s, you knew when she was here, it was, you know, DuPont Circle, Capitol Hill, um, Georgetown, Foggy mm -hmm. Bottom. I mean, and barely downtown. I mean, there just wasn't the breadth and depth of uh, real estate uh, or neighborhoods that there is today. I mean, it's, I mean, work is the same sure. way. I mean, it's totally different. All right, listen, I'm going to have to wrap you up because the show only goes so long. Um, so can you tell people, please, uh, where they can find you in both locations? And if just before we wrap up entirely, can you tell me about anything that's coming up for you uh, or coming up at the restaurants that we should sort of keep our eyes open on? So Ilili DC is at the wharf. It's on 100 District Square, uh, which is a standalone building. Uh, it's open for dinner and brunch, Friday, uh, Saturdays and Sundays, and we're working on opening for lunch um, uh, very soon, uh, which we will be announcing. Um, Ilili, New York is at 236 Fifth Avenue between 27th and 28th. Uh, we're very proud to have uh, been one of the engines of transformation of the Flatiron Nomad area. And uh, we just signed the letter of intent for Ilili Miami. So I'll give oh, you the scoop. Exciting. Uh, uh, 
but I don't have yet uh, the, the, the lease in hand, but we're very excited about being able to do a, a beautiful project in Miami as well. Um, in regards to uh, what's coming up, uh, I love Thanksgiving in our restaurants. We really go out of our way to do an immaculate, delicious, amazing Thanksgiving. We do a delicious sausage gravy that's made with the, Leban the Lebanese lamb sausage. Um, we do um, uh, the sweet potatoes with halva uh, and maple syrup okay. on them. Like halva uh, is like my kryptonite. Like I, you, know, you get a little taste of it and you're like, okay, I don't need any more. And then you're like, oh, maybe a little more. Maybe I'll have a little bit more. That stuff is sick. <laughs> And I'm doing uh, I'm I'm doing R and D on a so we have the Elidi chocolate mm -hmm. candy bar, but instead of doing the chocolate candy bar, we're gonna do a pumpkin uh, oh, candy yeah. bar with uh, flavored uh, cinnamon and allspice crumble mm -hmm. and a bourbon caramel on top. So I'm at I'm at, I'm at version two of the dessert. Yesterday I was I was tasting it, so hopefully. I'll have it finalized by Monday, and uh, the menu will be coming out. All right. Besides that, um, just trying to have fun and live well, a good I life. Well, I think you're doing a really good job <laughs> of both, which I applaud. So I want to thank you so much, uh, Chef, for joining me today and just sharing your story and um, your thank success, you. which is really um, heartwarming and great to hear. And I want to thank all of the guests for joining us today. Uh, this is Nikki Nellis at N-Y-C-C-I, N-E-L-L-I-S, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And don't forget, you now watch this show on YouTube. So please subscribe. And any questions you have today for me or for Chef, just, you know, pop it anywhere on any of my platforms. I'm delighted to get back to you. Uh, I don't make reservations. I do get that one quite a lot. Uh, but uh, there's other platforms that do that. So thank you so much for joining me. Chef, thank you for joining me. And everybody, please have a delicious thank week. You. Produced by HeartCast Media.